weeks ago, the leadership team, the, the pastoral staff, our deacons, department leaders, uh, got together and we were, we were launching on a project because uh, eight years into our pastorate here, we began to recognize that the church that we were when we first started is not who we are today, and we recognized that we needed a, a vision and a mission and a values statement that reflected who we are today. And we'll be revealing that to you pretty soon. We, we've concluded that part. But one of the fascinating parts of that discussion came as a result of some of the things that we're going to be doing this afternoon with our, our guest luncheons. We were talking to our guests, and we asked them to begin to describe to us some of the qualities that they found as they had attended again and again. And some of the words that came up again and again were things like friendly and warm and welcoming and inclusive and outgoing and and so we begin to recognize that not only do we need a value and missions and vision statement, but we thought uh, perhaps we could take some of the things that have been described of us and put them into a who are we statement or a, a slogan. And uh, this morning I just want to share with you that what has come out of that as, as we've worked together to find the right words of giving a description of who we are is this, Grace Assembly, a community of hope welcoming people home. Grace Assembly, a community of hope welcoming people home. And today I'd like to share with you a little bit about some of the spiritual foundation that we believe sustains that statement and gives us a launching pad into how we can reach out. I, I loved the fact today that we were able to, to recognize one of our school professionals that we have partnered with to help them so that our kids can be loved and, and, uh, in, in that way. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to, to John chapter 15. And I want to read verses 9 through 17. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. And the scripture declares, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. In the movie The Bride of Frankenstein, you, you mean you can't see how that's relevant to this text? This would have been in the original version, the 1935 version. There is an episode where the monster is wandering through the woods and he comes across this isolated, lonely cabin. And in the cabin is a blind man. And they begin to interact with one another and the blind man, since he cannot see, does not perceive the hideousness of the monster and so he says to him, are you afflicted as I? Because in speaking with him, he recognizes that 
He apparently can't speak. He says, I cannot see and you cannot speak. Maybe we can help each other. We can be friends. And the blind man begins to interact with the monster. And at the end of that first day together, the monster is laying on a bed in the blind man's cabin. And he gets down beside him on his knees and he takes him by the hand. And he says this prayer. I thank you, gracious Lord, for you have heard my relentless prayers and you have sent me a friend in my terrible loneliness. And the monster hears this prayer and has somebody taken him by the hand and the camera zooms in on the monster's face and a tear falls out of his eye and slides down his face and falls on the bed that he's laying on. And for a few, a few but pitiful days the monster lives in this blind man's cottage and for a few days he listens to the violin playing and it brings peace to his spirit and the blind man begins to try to teach the monster how to speak and he begins to learn a few words and the only touch of humanity this monster ever experiences are in a cabin in an isolated place in the woods with a blind man who cannot perceive his looks but will grab him by the hand and will call him friend and the scene ends when hunters show up that are hunting the monster and an episode ensues and the cabin ends up being burned down to the ground and the monster is back out in the woods and in loneliness and in the dark he's groping around and he's quietly saying one of the words that he had learned when he was going, friend, friend. And it's, it's comical, but it says... Something that there's nothing more humanizing than friendship. There's nothing more life engendering than friendship. But it also declares to us that there is nothing more horrible than the pain of loneliness. And studies have come out that indicate that people die more readily of diseases if loneliness is a regular part of their life, and who would have ever thought that solitary confinement would be considered torture? But so great is the need within humanity that we need friends. There are three questions that I want us to ask the text this morning. Why do you need friendship? How do we get that need met? And what does friendship with Jesus look like? The first question is, why do we need friendship? And if you have a bulletin, there's an outline there for you if you want to jot down some notes this morning. I believe the question of why we need friendship is answered in verse 9 of our text when it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. The reason I believe that it answers that question is because the reason that we need friends is that we are like God. Now let me clarify that for just a moment. I'm not saying that we are like God in all of his qualities and his intrinsic nature. What I'm saying is that we are like God because we've been created in his image and our nature for needing relationship started in the relationship with God. In fact, the word love that is interpreted in this verse is actually a word that means the closest of friendship. And so when Jesus is speaking here, the term friend comes up three times, and it clearly is his subject in this passage of Scripture. In fact, the Scripture could be interpreted correctly also to say, as the Father and I have been eternally friends, so I befriend you. 
What Jesus is saying is that there's something in the Trinity that is the basis for all human relationships. Now, a lot of people are critical of the Trinity because it is so difficult for us to try to explain. Out of all the doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity, I have to admit to you, is difficult to explain because it's hard for us to say we serve one God who is made up of three persons, but we serve one God who is made up of three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you have been taught the Trinity by the picture of the egg that has a shell and an egg white and yolk. It's one egg but three parts and others of you through the wheel. But I want you to understand that in the relationship with the Trinity, there is a relationship that exists and functions in the personality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Consider this. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, the world doesn't make sense. The Trinity explains why a monster becomes human under the influence of a friend. When the Bible tells us that before time, when there was nothing else, before the beginning, for all of eternity, the Bible tells us there was friendship. Friendship was never created There was never a time when friendship was not because for all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit knew each other, loved one another, and delighted in one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned together. They talked together. They communicated with each other. And so friendship is at the root of the reality and is the baseline for all things. It is foundational. It is something that is more profound than existence itself because in a sense friendship existed before time existed before we knew anything the relationship of the trinity with one another set for us the stage and so this explains to us why loneliness is such a massively cosmic thing why it affects us so deeply think about this when adam was the first human being created He was perfect. He was sinless. He was put into the Garden of Eden, which God described as paradise. In other words, you would get this image in your mind that life can't get any better than this. This is as good as it gets. And just about the time you'd begin to think about that, God looks and he said, but there is something that is not good because he's alone and he's lonely. And let me tell you something. Adam's loneliness was not a result of sin. Adam's loneliness was not because he was imperfect. Adam was lonely because he was perfect. Because he was created in the nature of God for relationship. And because he was created in that image, there was a part of his nature that needed someone to love. Someone to work with. Someone to talk to. Someone to share with. And so as you look at it that way, today we see all of our problems. We have the problem of anger. We have the problem of anxiety. We have the problem of fear, the problem of insecurity. All of our cowardice, it all arises from our sin. But loneliness is the one problem that you've got because you're made in the image of God. Are you lonely? Have you ever been lonely? Do you know why? It's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because there's something right with you. Because you are created in the image of God for relationship. And so I would declare to you that the less you need friends, 
the less you are like God. So when we describe ourselves with the slogan that we are a community of hope, we describe our church as a community, which means that we put out to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family and all those who attend that if you're going to come to our church, what you will discover us to be is a community that will envelop you. A community that will recognize you, a community that will engage you, a community that will put our arms around you and recognize that there's a part of our human need that needs relationship. And so you will find that community here in a sense of friendship because it's the very nature of God. And if we want them to fall in love with God, it must start first at a friendship level. The second part of why we need friends is this. We need friends because we need God. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. So the relationship between the Father and Son in the Trinity is the basis for all friendship. Because then Jesus turns around and he says this. Now what you need is friendship with me above anything else and that's what he said now remain in my love now remain in my friendship there's something about a relationship with me that makes everything else in your life make sense now we know that friendships with other human beings are indispensable nothing can replace them Adam even needed Eve even though he had a relationship with God however Jesus is also very clearly stating within this passage of scripture that a human friendship or a human relationship will never be able to deliver to your spirit total satisfaction. And the reason for that is, I know that this is going to stun you, but none of us are perfect. We are all flawed. And as a result of that, no other human being will ever be able to deliver the perfect satisfaction because every one of us are prone to mistakes. And so... If you are believing that if I can just find the right friend, if I can just find the right husband or wife, or just find the right relationship, everything in my life will fall into place and it will all be made right, you're looking in the wrong place. And what you will discover is that your life will be very bitter and very upset because people will always let you down. In fact, what happens is if your nature is such to envelop friendship with other people so tightly that your mood rises if you're in friendship with people or it falls if that friendship seems to be falling apart or seems to grow distance, then you will discover your life will be a roller coaster of emotions. That when I've got friends that are close, man, I'm, a, I'm on a mountaintop. But the moment that something seems to be drawing that friendship away from me, then I plunge to the depths of depression. And the Lord says there's something more to it than that. He says, if your deepest needs are being met in the friendships that you have with people, then you'll always be disappointed. Jesus says that I have made you friends. And this is an amazing thing that no other religion can offer. Listen to this. Eastern religions say God is beyond emotion. He's beyond grief and joy and tears. And if he is beyond that, then he's beyond friendship. The ancient Greeks said that God was apatheia, which means that God is apathetic, or that God is not capable of caring, or he's not capable of emotion, or he's not capable of having a relationship. But then you move into the Bible, 
And even in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that God was having a relationship when it says that Abraham and Moses were friends of God, described as a relationship. And then Jesus comes along and has the audacity to say to us that friendship with God is available to all of us through him. Every one of us can be friends of God. So why do we need friends? Because we were created in the image of God and we are like him in that nature. And secondly, we need God ultimately as our friend because our human friendships will never satisfy like a relationship with him. Second point this morning. How do we meet the need for friendship? I believe if you look at this passage, it gives us a couple of wonderful markers of what makes good friendship. And and there are only two that I want to address because I believe that that's where the scripture goes. But not only can these markers give us a gauge to the depth of our human friendships, I also believe that it can give us an idea of the depth of your friendship with the Lord. You'll notice that the passage tells us two things. Number one, a friend is someone who always lets you in. Now, I didn't say a friend is someone who always lets you win. I said a friend is someone who always lets you in. And a friend never lets you down. A friend is someone who always lets you in. One of the most important parts of the art of friendship, and, and if you have trouble making friends, then chances are it's got to do with one of these two things. is either because in your pursuit of friendship, you may start to open your heart up and tell your secrets too quickly. Some of you may have experienced that where you're being introduced to somebody and they begin to pour out their heart and the depths of the secrets of their life way too quickly for you. And so as a result of that, you begin to back off thinking, whoa, 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 way too much, way too soon. I haven't developed a relationship or that level of trust yet to want to know all of that yet. And as a result of that, you, you feel coerced or you feel they're forcing their way in. But the other side of that coin is this. Maybe one of the reasons you've had such a hard time making friends is because you don't tell the secrets of your heart quickly enough. Maybe you don't move to deeper levels of intimacy. Maybe you have discovered, I would rather know more about you, but I am not willing to open the doors of my innermost thoughts, or I'm not willing to share with you some of those things. And so the art of friendship is that you open up and you encourage the other person to open up, and there's this mutual exchange of choosing each other. You cannot force friendship. You have to mutually choose one another, and you do that by telling secrets by revealing yourself, your thoughts, your plans, and you do it in stages, and you do it progressively. And so a friend is one who lets you into their life. A friend is also one who doesn't let you down. A friend is a person that will put themselves out for you. I pray that every one of you has at least one person in your life that you recognize if something was going on in the middle of the night that you could dial the phone and that they would see your name and answer it, first of all, and that regardless of what is going on in their life, that they would stop what they're doing, jump up, and run to, be your, to your aid. I also pray that each one of you are the kind of person that has at least one person that can call and wake you up in the middle of the night. And know that you will respond because you value that relationship with them. A friend never lets you down. If, you're without, if you have one of these without the other, then you're not really a friend. Because you see, if you pour your guts out to somebody, 
but you are never there for them, then you're not a friend. They are your therapy group. But you're not really a friend to them. The other side of that is if you were there for somebody, but you never let them into your life, then you're like their social worker. But you're not really a friend to them because it takes mutual choosing. And so the marks of friendship are candor and constancy. Friends will always let you in and will never let you down. Which brings us into the third point. How does friendship with Jesus look? How does friendship with Jesus look? Let me apply, the, apply these principles to our relationship with Jesus. Is Jesus a friend that always lets you in? There's a verse in our text in verse 15, and, and this is really interesting the way it's, it's worded. It says, this is Jesus speaking, saying, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. This is powerful here because this is Jesus saying everything my father has revealed to himself about me, which is everything, I am willing to share the secrets of that with you. I'm so willing to let you in that everything I have learned I'm willing to make known. And in doing so, Jesus describes that there's a difference between servants and friends. Servants don't really know the heart of the one that they serve. They don't really know the mind of the one they serve. And then he builds on this with another verse in Psalm 25, 14, when he says this. The Lord confides in those who fear him. Now, I did a little Hebrew search of this word confides, and, and here's what I discovered. Depending on the translation of the Bible that you're reading, if you're in the New King James Version or the King James Version, the word is not confined, but it's, it's the word secrets. The Lord tells secrets to those who fear him. The interesting thing about the Hebrew word secret is it's also the same word that the Hebrews use for friendship. And so the Bible is clearly telling us that the Lord is friends and speaks secrets to those who are his friends. So Jesus tells them, I let you in because I tell you secrets and I don't hold any information back. So desperately is how Jesus longs to be our friend. Now some of you are saying, how? How in the world can I have a friendship with God? Listen closely, because this is going to answer a question for some of you of what is the difference between religion and relationship. It's this. Here's the difference. The difference in being religious is that you do things trying to earn the favor of God. In a relationship that we have with Jesus, he comes to us as a friend. Here's the way this plays out. Muhammad lived, and he wrote a book, and then he died. And so what do you have left? You've got Muhammad's book. Buddha lived, and he wrote a book of sayings, and then he dies. And what do you have? You have a book of Buddha's sayings. Confucian writes, Confucius writes all of his proverbs, and then he dies. And so what do you have? You have a, a book of proverbs. But then there's Jesus. Jesus leaves himself. So what do you have? We have a relationship with a living God who's alive and well, working in us and through us. And here's how that works out. In fact, I love it because the chapter before our text in John 14, the whole chapter is about how Jesus lives in us and through his Holy Spirit works within us. And so he lives in us and he's working through us. He's empowering us. He's directing us. He's making us competent. And he works within us and through us every second of every day. 
And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you don't know Jesus as a friend. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he starts it out by saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened or that the eyes of your heart will be opened. Here's what he meant. And for those of you that have a relationship with Jesus, you're going to know exactly what I mean. When you open the Bible and you start to read it, you recognize that something happens there. It comes alive. It's moving with you. It's directing you. It's speaking to you. It's something that is living and directs exactly where you're at. In fact, you read it and you're thinking, God must have read my mail. He must have read my mind because he's applying truth directly to what you're going through in life. He corrects, he instructs, he encourages, he redirects, he counsels. His word works on you and changes you and becomes part of you because he's living in you and he's at work in the relationship with you. And you read your Bible and you recognize it's unlike reading any other book because somebody is there with you. That's friendship. That's friendship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And the verse then goes on to say this. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that he has called you to. So when we as a church declare that we are a community of hope, it doesn't put the pressure on us to be people's hope. It puts the pressure on us to redirect the glory of the Lord to the lives of others. This is the hope that we're connecting people to. We do not become the answer to people's issues, but we direct them to Jesus who is. He's my friend. Let me introduce you to my friend in Jesus. And so because it's not a hope we created, all we can do is reflect it, but it becomes our privilege as friends of Jesus to invite others into this community of hope. So when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, he doesn't just give us a map. He doesn't just say, hey, now that you've entered into a relationship, here's where I want you to go and here's how I want you to do it. No, he gets in our life with us. I would advise you to let him have the driver's seat. Because not only does he give us the map, he is the map. And he gives us himself to take on the journey. So he confides he tells us his secret to those who entered into a friendship with him. He lets you in. Jesus is also a friend that will never let you down. He's a friend that will put himself out there for you. Thankfully, his sleeping hours are not the same as mine, and so many times in the middle of the night, as we have been awakened, we can call on the name of Jesus. My wife mentioned this week that there was... Uh, a moment two nights ago, she woke up in the middle of the night with, with feeling as if the enemy was attacking. And she says, all I had to say was, in the name of Jesus. And peace instantly entered in. Peace came. Because Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Tim Keller tells a story about a small village near Martha's Vineyard that for years was really an isolated place. And as a result, most of the people in that village begin to intermarry. And for a long period of time, 10% of that village was deaf. And because they were so isolated and began to intermarry, the, the genetic anomaly that caused that deafness had remained in them for quite some time. And it wasn't until a few years ago that the mobility of society, and there had been enough intermarriage of people that were coming in that that anomaly disappeared. 
But there was a historian that was doing some research on this village. And she began to discover some unique things. She discovered that the deaf people in that village married at the same rate as the hearing people. They graduated from school at the same rate as hearing people, and they had the exact same income level as hearing people. She then said, I went across the sound into the mainland of Massachusetts where they had lots and lots of services for deaf people, of which the village that I had been at had none. And she goes, and here's what I discovered. On the mainland, deaf people married only half as often as hearing people. They made incomes that were only 33% of what the hearing population would make. And they graduated from school only half as often as the hearing people. And she looked at this and she said, what is going on? How can the, the one place in the United States where there is no public services for the deaf, that everybody thrives in a place like that, and in a place where there are so many services, it seems as if they were not thriving. And here's what she realized. She realized that every other place was serving deaf people, but in this community, from the earliest childhood, every person grew up learning two languages. They learned English, and they learned sign language. As a result of that, there was never anybody that was ever left out of conversations. There was never anybody that didn't feel they were able to be known. They were never anybody that didn't feel that they were uh, a part of the community. And as a result of that, everybody knew each other well. The deaf people were given equal friendship because the whole community was committed to one another. This is exactly what Jesus says when he says, a servant doesn't know about the business of the one he serves. Because a servant is a professional that's just doing a job. A servant delivers the services and then says, my job is done, I'm out of here. I'm going home. But a friend welcomes you into their life, and you welcome them into yours. Friendship means that you get involved, and you put yourself out, and you invest yourself in others, and you let them invest in you. That's the only way to humanize people. And for some of you that are service-oriented people, what you will discover is that it's easier for you to serve others than it is for you to let them serve you. And some of that means that you have to humble yourself and let people be your friend also. So Jesus gives you this great invitation. It's an invitation to friendship that is beyond belief when in verse 16 he says this, you did not choose me, I chose you. Now I want you to think about the gravity of that statement. If any of us ever had the opportunity of being able to choose one person that would know our name, it would be God. If we could do anything to have a friend as influential that would know us personally, it would be God. And in all of this, Jesus says, let me tell you something. I came after you for friendship. You didn't come after me. So here's the spiritual application. Verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ says, You can't be my friends unless you see that I have laid down my life for you. We've often celebrated people as heroes who gave up their life to save others. 
and I don't discount that or dismiss that in any way, but let me tell you something. If I see you in peril, and in trying to save your life, give mine what I really have done, I really haven't given my life for you. I may have given up a few years of my life so that you can get a few more years, but I really haven't given up my life for you. I've sacrificed a few years, but I was going to die anyway. Jesus is the only friend who didn't have to die at all. There was never a part of his nature that caused him to have to deserve to die. So when Jesus dies for you, he's really given up his life to call you friend. And there's not a single person in this room room that can possibly do that for anyone else. So when Jesus, our friend, lays down his life for you, it means this. He pays every debt and every sin you ever had. He said, I stand in for you, and I'm your substitute. So when I lay down my life for you, this is real friendship because I'm the only friend that never had to die. But my death actually saves you. It doesn't just give you a few more years. It gives you eternal glory. And so what Jesus has done puts himself in a class by himself in the area of friendship. And here's the secret. He said, unless you receive my death for you, you can never be my closest friends. That's the requirement. You have to receive what I've done for you in order to be my friend. So when you think that Jesus says in the scripture, you're no longer servants, but now I call you friends, what he is saying is, The moment that you receive the fact that my death gave you life and you choose to follow me in friendship, I enter into you and change everything. Worship team, would you please come? But if you want eternal life this morning, then let me tell you that you have to receive the fact that Jesus died for you. And you must let him into your life. Because what he brings is friendship that is immeasurably more than you and I could ever earn in our life. And we bring so much less to our friendship with him than he brings to us. So here's three applications to close with. Some of you have to see that what you have tried to be in relationship with Jesus is you've tried to be a servant. You've tried to make him happy by your service. But you've not seen him as your friend. And you must believe today that he died for you and allow him space into your life to guide you, to get into you and to live through you. Some of you have also been hesitant to really open up and let people see you as you really are. You've stood there with a shield in front of you because you think, if I really open up my heart to people, at best they're going to yawn, at worst they're going to run. But there comes risk in allowing people in and revealing yourself progressively as they do you. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus says this, but I have chosen you. You did not choose me. I have chosen you to be my friend. And thirdly, and this is important, some of you have struggled in your life since you have come to know the Lord to see real change in your life. Some of you have received Jesus as your Savior, but you're still living Life the same way you did before, you still constantly fall into the same 
spiritual potholes that you did and you're, and you're wondering why is it that I'm this way and I believe, I believe this is one of the reasons we can get to the stage where when we think of God as sitting on a throne that he's, he's disengaged from us and he's looking when, when you think of your relationship with God as him out there and you hear there's no motivation to change but listen to what it says in Psalm 55 12 David says this If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide it from him. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. Here's what changes us. When we enter into a friendship with Jesus, we begin to recognize that the sins we have committed are not against the God way out there, but we're committing sins against a friend whom we're looking at face to face. There are some behaviors that I will not participate in because I don't want to ever see my wife's face hurt. That relationship keeps me. I believe that if you're desiring a change in your life, we need to begin to look at Jesus through the eyes of a friendship when he says, don't you know how deeply it hurts? Our friendship, when you choose to ignore things that I have directed you to do so when I think of him as friend I'm thinking when he says Doug Dement if an enemy had done this to me it's one thing but you're my friend and so it hurts me even worse considering everything that I've done for you so asking forgiveness of a friend is transformative it changes us it produces a melting grief It melts me back into shape, and some of you need to hear that today. He's not a God way out there. He's a friend face to face, and that's the relationship he desires of you. Would you stand with me, please?